celebrate our dear friend Steve Chauvin's uh, big birthday this week. Great to be with you. Are, are you still on your trip abroad or are you back? You're back. You're back. Okay, good. All right. We're glad you're back. We hope you had a great celebration. Great to see you. Uh, great to see all of you. And um, we're going to have some fun today, as always, with John Stuart Mill, a real party animal uh, from the 19th century. So let's start with a little poll question here. I am happiest when I'm with people I love, no matter what we're doing, playing a sport, eating food I love, spiritually or intellectually engaged. Of course, there's many other options we could put on here, but just choosing among those four. Are you happiest when you're with people you love, no matter what you're doing, when you're playing a sport, when you're eating food you love, or when you're spiritually or intellectually engaged? Okay, nobody chose playing a sport or eating food they love, although I'm sure that, that makes many of us happy. 43% said when they're with people they love, no matter what they're doing. And 57% said spiritually or intellectually engaged. Okay, very interesting. So that's always worth thinking about what brings us joy, what gives us meaning, and how do we bring more of that into our lives? And one of the many reasons that I am, um, I love this space with you all is that I feel spiritually and intellectually engaged in this space with you all. And that it really brings me a lot of joy. Um, so John Stuart Mill, here we go, friends. This is going to be slightly similar to Bentham that we had a few weeks ago for obvious reasons in the utilitarian camp around happiness and pain and pleasure. Um, but of course, there, are, there, there will be differences. So friends, what is the meaning of life? If it is happiness, if happiness is the meaning of life, what does happiness even mean? What type of society allows happiness to be found by the most people, right? And how could we cultivate such a society? A British utilitarian, John Stuart Mill, was less skeptical than David Hume and less dogmatic than Jeremy Bentham, the one who I just mentioned as kind of the father of utilitarianism that we did in session 19 or 18. Though those previous thinkers certainly helped shape his thought, David Hume in skepticism and Bentham in utilitarianism. Mill then was more of a reformer and a refiner than a revolutionary, right? So sometimes you get the early revolutionary thinkers and then you get those who kind of polish it up a little bit. Think about the Hasidic movement. In Hasidut, you have the founder, the Baal Shem Tov. He and his students were very radical very radical, like turn Judaism on its head, far more radical than the birth of Reform Judaism, you know, in contrast to traditional Judaism, was um, 
the what the Baal Shem Tov and the founders of Hasidut did. Um, really, just a, a very uh, subversive force. So, so too we see that um, with many other thinkers as well. Um, of course, with the Hasidic movement later, they become very pious, but not revolutionary at all. They're anything but radical. If you if you meet Hasidic Jews today, they're very strict about the letter of the law. They don't say anything controversial. Whereas early Hasidut was very radical. So too we see that with many with many philosophers as well, of course. Um, and the opposite. Mill wrestled with Bentham's happiness principle, his idea that the ultimate goal of all of society is to maximize happiness of any kind. He generally agreed with the idea, but he wanted to figure out how to balance an individual's happiness with the welfare of society at large. Further, Mill wanted a way to motivate people to act not just for their own happiness, but for the happiness of everyone. Right when your philosophy is based on happiness, it can very quickly lead to hedonism. Right, hedonism being, um, and and hedonism for some utilitarians is not a bad word, although I suspect it's a bad word for most of us. Hedonism basically means life is about pleasure. You just do what makes you feel good, right? And that's a moral life for a hedonist because life is about pleasure. Just do whatever makes you feel good, right? And so Bentham, um, sorry, Mill is kind of pushing back a little bit by saying, okay, so yeah, we do want people to be happy. We do want people to have pleasure. But how do we balance this individual's pleasure with the welfare of society at large, with the welfare of the of the collective? And some things that individuals will do that make them happy um, are going to decrease happiness for others. Um, not Not even going as far as causing harm, but there's limited resources. And if I just grab all the resources for me because they make me happy, right, there's less resources for other people. And so Mills, so Mills' innovation was the harm principle. The idea that people should, by and large, be free to pursue their own happiness, with one exception, when it interferes with the welfare of others. One's own pursuit of happiness is not a license to harm someone else. And so, as people generally say, rule number one of ethics, do no harm, right? Before you go out and do good, the first thing is make sure you're minimizing the harm. We're now in the week between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And of course, we do think about how we can do more good in the world. But by and large, the bigger meditation of this week is about where am I causing pain to others? Where am I missing the arc, the mark where I'm not sensitive enough, where I am causing some harm, maybe directly or maybe indirectly being complicit in some way? So, yes, let's pursue our happiness, but let's make sure we're doing it in a way that is not adding harm, Mill, Mill wants us to think about. Um, and it's interesting that, that we have these medical uh, students or doctors, whatever, whoever's here, um, you know, it, to help remind us also that in the medical profession, the whole notion of do no harm, um, you know, has to be um, has to be primary. Of course, there's an ob obligation to cure, an obligation to heal, but before the obligation to heal is the obligation to no to do no harm. So you don't take massive risks, um, you know, unless somebody signs off on it. And later in his life, Mill became a member of British Parliament which enabled him to put his philosophy into practice. 
I recently was in that room. Actually, not exactly in that room. In that balcony, I guess. I guess it's still the room. But in that balcony, um, it was very empty and looked very boring. And the people who were talking, no one was paying attention to. <laughs> but there it looks very lively, or at least very full. Uh, but that, anyways, th th that is the famous room that we often think about, which looks very different than our own, uh, you know, Capitol Hill, but similar. Anyways, so Mill was a member of British Parliament, which enabled him to put his philosophy into practice. As a public intellectual and practical philosopher, he was a strong advocate for free speech and for human rights. This included strong support for women's suffrage in opposition to slavery. Now, you know, freedom of speech gets a little bit of a bad rap today because I'm sure we all know freedom of speech is, is foundational to democracy, right? Um, a big part of the founding of democracy was really based on the idea that people didn't have freedom of speech, that you would be killed or imprisoned for speaking out against the monarchy. The notion that we're going to protect the media we're going to protect the, the activist, the protester. We're going to protect the one campaigning to run against someone else in a campaign is a great, great innovation and insight of the Western world. Um, you know, you don't find that in Muslim theocracies. You don't find that in China. You don't find that in Russia. Um, and, you know, the, um, so this is something to cherish. That said, um, someone like Elon Musk uses freedom of speech to enable hate speech, right? On Twitter, which is now called X, right? He's constantly celebrating freedom of speech to not be responsible to protect minorities and other vulnerable populations from hate speech, which I think um, is a misunderstanding of what freedom of speech is ultimately about. Unfortunately, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who um, has shown terrible moral judgment in recent months, um, in my view, around many issues, also did so by by inter by um, by being in conversation with Musk yesterday um, and giving him a pass for even attacking the ADL um, in re in the last month um, and uh, demonizing the ADL even. Um, for them pushing back on him for, for giving space for hate speech. In any case, so it might look like Mill's a part of such a, a thing by celebrating free speech, but we should remember that the stage that Mill is in is just a crucial time for the advancement of human civilizations and just how important free speech was then and still is today. At the same time, Mill was about, was, was what today we think about as a classic libertarian. <laughs> Again, that has a very different context today than then, but let's understand anyways. He wanted a free market economy in which the government would rarely intervene in the economy, right? Today, the market is down. The market is down because people are worried about what the Fed is going to say, right? Today, we understand there's a Fed. and The Fed regulates, um, you know, interest rates, and there's a whole bunch of other governmental interventions into the into the marketplace, of course. And Mill wants to limit that. Although he cared about society's well-being, he believed that that was best achieved by prioritizing the freedom of the individual. This made Mill an architect of Victorian liberalism, 
right? We think of liberalism today, meaning I'm a liberal, I'm a Democrat, I'm a progressive, right? But liberalism in this sense means it's liberal in that we want the government to not control the people. We want the people to be free from government. This made sense, um, a lot of sense hundreds of years ago where um, government dominated the people, right? Monarchies dominated the people. People had very few freedoms. And so Victorian liberalism is a move towards individual freedom. Today, there's a, a, a more fair debate because today there is this tension between individuals' needs and government overstepping. And how do we balance governmental responsibilities, societal collective responsibilities with individual freedoms? Democrats, by and large, think today we should have more, um, you know, government stepping in in regards to, um, you know, welfare issues and regulating the marketplace. Republicans typically think the opposite. And libertarians, which are not necessarily Republicans or Democrats, um, also not only in the marketplace, but on all issues. And so if a libertarian was true to their idea, um, they would be pro they would be pro choice, because why should the government step in as it relates to abortion? Um, just like they shouldn't step in, um, you know, on marketplace ideas. But but there are liberal libertarians, but by and large, libertarians, of course, are conservative today. In any case, um, we shouldn't. Uh, th this flag is 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 viewed as um, kind of an extreme flag today. Don't tread on me in terms of libertarianism. But thinking of Victorian li liberalism, it had, a, it of course, has a different context. However. Uh, Unlike libertarians today, which we rightly or wrongly tend to think of as amoral, right? A I say amoral, not immoral, of course. Amoral meaning the libertarian who is true to the ideology um, is not interested in the moral questions, what's good for society in terms of policy. They're interested in the freedom issue, right? So they might say, I think everybody smoking weed all day is bad. But I don't think it's the role of government to to incarcerate people for smoking weed. Right. And so they want the freedom of the people, even if the freedom granted would be used, you know, poorly. Um, so, too, they might say I'm pro-choice, but against the against abortion. Right. I don't want the government to get involved with who has abortions, even though I'm against abortion, one might say. So so to here, um, we're going to say that libertarians. Um, by and large, are, a are amoral in their politics. They want freedom regardless of what the moral consequence necessarily is. So uh, unlike that approach, Mill gave great consideration to what constitutes a good life, not just a free life, but a good life. Unlike Bentham, who valued merely the duration and intensity of pleasure, right? The duration of pleasure and the intensity. We want to know in, in a utilitarian approach that pleasure is long lasting and that it's intense, right? We don't just want people to have a little bite of cake, right? We wanna make sure that people have a sustained experience in their lives of fulfillment of this pleasure. On the other hand, Mill held that we must consider the quality of the pleasure we're seeking. Ah, if, if what makes everybody happy is drinking Slurpees all day, right? Maybe we shouldn't just give everyone a, a backpack with Slurpees. Everybody doesn't get a free Slurpee backpack. Instead, we want to know the quality of the pleasure, not just that it's it feels good. And so 
we would be more interested in a society where people found pleasure in the opera and found pleasure in being of service to others and found pleasure in conversation and pleasure in meditation and prayer, pleasure in kind of what we think of as more noble pursuits, right? Rather than slurpy backpacks. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so Mill wants us to think about pleasure, but pleasure as something noble, something that can be elevated in a sense. To Mill, sensu sensual pleasures were not of equal value to the pleasure derived from higher intellectual endeavors. Indeed, he believed we should have a society that puts more emphasis on higher pleasures. Mill distinguished between kinds of pleasure by recognizing two categories of desire. You can desire a thing for its own sake, such as a piece of cake that will be of no benefit to you beyond the minutes you spend eating it. Or you can be motivated by something beyond the immediate pleasure, such as a sense of duty or responsibility. For Mill, it was better to desire something as a means toward happiness than to desire something as an end in itself. Got that? So the way that pleasure connects to happiness for Mill is that you can have a pleasure that's an end in itself or a pleasure that leads you towards a higher path of happiness. We're more interested in the latter. Um, and so in our homeless outreach work over here, Yes, of course, we value people and their basic needs. We don't go out with, um, out to the streets and tell people, we don't want to feed you and give you water and, and cooling because you should be interested in opera and meditation, right? That would be cruel and, 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 and senseless, right? What they need is food and water and cooling. So we meet their physical needs and we don't denigrate that. But we also know they're human beings. And what they also long for is connection and dignity. And so we look them in the eye. We talk to them. We respect them, right? We understand that they need higher pleasures, such as human connection, in addition to physical ones that keep them alive. These notions of happiness have a, a complex relationship with the Jewish tradition. <laughs> we know that happiness is not the sole purpose of life in Judaism the way utilitarians would consider it to be the ultimate goal of society. However, happiness does occupy a central role. The entire book of Psalms begins with the word ashray or happy, right? It says in Psalm chapter one, verse one. Yes, thank you, Eileen. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes, very good. It says over there in Psalm chapter one, verse one, happy is the one who has not followed the counsel of the wicked or taken the path of sinners or joined the company of the insolent. Rather, the teaching of the Lord is their delight and they study that teaching day and night. And so, you know, Rosh Hashanah, I spent with hundreds of people in recovery from drug addiction. Um, it was just remarkable to uh, be immersed with that kind of community. Rosh Hashanah, that's how I'm going to spend Yom Kippur as well. People just out of prison, people who are days off coke or heroin, people who have been alcoholics for 20 years living in the streets, who are now in a, working towards sobriety and in a recovery center. And the amount of joy they have, I mean, um, they have to be in this recovery experience. And they use the language of, 
of, of sin oftentimes because they're coming out of the AA experience, which has a religious overtone to it. And their experience of the joy they're finding in reconnecting. And so, um, yeah, so we see this type of happiness, meaning moving towards a place of wholeness instead of brokenness, moving to a place of harmony, to a place of healing, to a place of virtue. So too, we recite from the Psalms and daily prayers, happy are those who dwell in your house. They forever praise you, Selah. In the AA community, a big part of recovery is acknowledging a higher power. Whatever or or whatever somebody thinks of a notion of God, crucial to the recovery experience in AA is the surrender of the self as God. I don't know who the higher power is, but it's not me. And so to surrender, say, I am entering this, this recovery center, and I am surrendering that I am the master of my destiny. I'm the master of my fate. And I am giving myself over to something bigger than myself. And so that's a big part of this recovery process as well. So happy are those who dwell in your house, right? That sense that I am entering this recovery place. I, we, are, we are all partially broken, right? There's the sick and the not yet sick, right? There's the broken and the not yet broken. In a sense, we all need to enter this tent of healing together in order to survive. Happiness we see comes from living a good life in line with this divine will, right? Towards doing what is ultimately right, doing what's right, doing it the right way, and doing it at the right time. This works well with Mill's critique of Bentham. We don't necessarily learn from Judaism, happy is the one who has a lot of cake, right? The one who dies with the most cake is the happiest, right? Instead, happiness comes from doing the right thing in service of a, of a larger purpose. Right. The person who wakes up with a purpose, wakes up with a sense that there are to be of service in the world, wakes up with a sense of meaning. Right. And of course, one of the great things Judaism does is it gives meaning to sensual pleasure. It gives meaning to sexual experience, meaning to food with with blessings. It gives meaning to sleep. It gives meaning to to exercise. Right. We don't just say, oh, the real meaning is the spiritually enlightened stuff over here. And then there's the sensual stuff you got to do because humans are animals, too. Rather, we come to say, right, that um, a part of our meaning of life is that we are animals and that we do want sensual pleasure. And that gets elevated into the realm of holiness. Further, we learn from Pirkei Avot, the ethics of the fathers. Ben Zoma said, who is rich? One who rejoices in their lot. As it is said, you shall enjoy the fruit of your labors. You shall be happy and you shall prosper. And so who is um, who is rich? Um, the one who is content with what they have, right? Someone can have, have $3 million in the bank account, but always feel in their social group that they're poor. Oh my gosh, my friends has got five fast cars and I only got one fast car. My friends all have four houses and I only got one, right? My friends have... $30 million and I'm sitting here poor with three. Someone else can be living off a $30,000 salary and feel really rich because their friends and their family, they're, they're homeless. They're, 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 they're they, you know, they're paycheck to paycheck making 17,000 a year. Right. Um, it's partially relative and partially full of how we experience what we have and, and, and the gratitude for it. Right. Being oriented towards, I have so much rather than oriented towards the lack. And so Ben Zoma's teaching over there 
this sense of perspective. In any case, this is another example of how Judaism most certainly does not discount the importance of material survival and success. However, unlike modern notions of happiness, which often assume one never has enough and therefore desires more, Judaism pushes us to recognize we can be happy with what we have and not just with what we wish we had. Even so, happiness through material survival and success is only the outer indication of something more profound. One of the great Jewish insights is that we do have the social justice imperative of meeting people's basic human needs, including basic physical securities and comforts. But then we also need to do the intellectual and spiritual work of finding fulfillment in something bigger. This picture here is of our, our new um, Arizona Jews for Justice homeless outreach coordinator, Brandon Nasenhoya. Um, I always want to say it a Jewish way of not shown, not shown, but it's Nasenhoya. Um, he's the fellow there who you can tell is half Native American, half black. Um, uh, the fellow on the right with the black shirt. And he is in the streets um, consistently, you know, for us on the native reservations, out, um, you know, in, in um, not just in the zone, but as you can see, they're giving buckets of cool drinks and providing cooling for others and all kinds of great stuff. Hopefully y'all will meet Brandon next time you're at our office or at a Arizona Jews for Justice volunteer program. In any case, we don't, um, once again, we don't denigrate um, the need for, to fulfill our physical needs. We celebrate that, um, our responsibilities to care for people's basic, basic needs while also trying to provide intellectual and spiritual uh, needs as well. Um, and so, you know, just again, reflecting on the recovery experience and being with people who, um, you know, have real physical needs um, and that need to be met. And, um, and also thinking about, you know, going back to Eileen, what you shared with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, how those are deeply connected to these other needs. In any case, Maimonides wrote in his Mora Nevuchim, the guide for the perplexed. The general object of the law is twofold, the well-being of the soul and the well-being of the body. The well-being of the soul is promoted by correct opinions communicated to the people according to their capacity. The well-being of the body is established by a proper management of the relations in which we live one to another. Um, now, just to, just to unpack what Maimonides is saying over there, Maimonides is tapping into Plato. Um, the well-being of the of the soul means the perfection of the intellect. All right, the soul is 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 intellectual, meaning you grasp the the most important truths. The well-being of the body is not the physical body; it's the body politic. The body politic uh, means, uh, as he fleshes out over there that we live in a society without violence, minimal violence. And Maimonides comes to say, say there, the purpose of Judaism is primarily the welfare of the body, the body politic, that everything we're doing ritually is towards us creating a more just society where people are safe. So here the Rambam would be in agreement with the harm principle. Ethics are tied to our happiness because people don't exist on individual islands. We are all interconnected. Rabbis Jack Reamer and Eli Spitz expounded on the levels of happiness in the Hebrew word ashrei. Rabbi Jack Reamer is a conservative rabbi, probably in his early 90s now. Eli Spitz also is retired. He just retired a year or two ago as a conservative rabbi. 
in in Orange County, um, and they together just wrote this book, uh, Duets on Psalms, Drawing Meaning from Ancient Words. And I thought this was an insightful passage. And I don't know if this is actually published yet or not. They they asked me to, to read the book in advance. And so that's where I found it. So I guess we won't share this beyond here. But uh, to delve deeper into defining happiness, let us look at the opening letter, which will, will reveal that happiness is an inner quality. This is kind of insightful here. In Hebrew, ashray, the word we quoted earlier, begins with an aleph, the first letter of the alphabet. One other Hebrew consonant, ayin, is silent, taking its sound from the vowel attached. These two letters at the start of a word repeatedly signify inner versus outer. When beginning with an ayin, or, which spells skin, but with an aleph, it means light. Asher, with an ayin, means wealth. With an aleph, it means happiness. This opening word therefore teaches that happiness is an inner experience, distinguished from externals such as wealth. Happiness is a lingering, quiet mind and an open heart, a cultivated tendency. So I know that's, for those who don't think a lot about the Hebrew aleph bet, that might have been a little heavy. So let me just unpack that one more time. Ayin and aleph kind of sound the same, but, um, or look, you know, or kind of serve a similar function in the, as letters. Um, they can be, um, but Aleph usually makes a sound, whereas Ayan um, would be silent. And so part of the insight here is that um, when Ayan is used, indicates something that is external. And the one example here was the, the word or. When or is spelled with an Ayan, it means skin, which is external. But when it's spelled with an aleph or, it means light, which is something that can be internal. Um, so too, asher with an ayin means wealth, something external, whereas the same word asher spelled with an aleph means happiness. And so these two letters have an internal versus external sense. And so part of their insight here was that happiness is spelled with an aleph, not an ayin, indicating that it's an internal state rather than uh, an external state. Uh, I mean, of course, there's an external nature to it, but it's about this inner world experience. Happiness, we know from both Mill and Judaism, is not about immediate pleasure, but about uncovering something deeper and more hidden. As such, we can agree with Mill that while utilitarianism was an important historical development, it went too far by valuing base emotions above all else. We can therefore appreciate Mill's nuancing from Bentham's less flexible approach. We can also see utilitarianism as a movement toward universalizing philosophers' concerns. Utilitarians were among the first ones to think seriously about the good of all people. They moved ethical concern from the individual to the masses. Nevertheless, happiness remains only one tool in the Jewish toolbox. As a rich tradition of law, of law and lore, Judaism does not feel the need to find simplistic calculations for the good that utilitarians propose. Instead, the ethics, narratives, and larger richly layered systems of the Jewish canon allows us to embrace gray areas, tensions, and competing values. So to conclude, to conclude friends, is Judaism all about happiness? 
Well, probably not. But focusing on a life of virtue is likely to do the incidental work of bringing us to a happier place. In Judaism, we follow not only Mill's harm principle, but also vast intertwined sets of other principles to bring us to the higher happiness Mill hoped all people would find. Okay, friends, would love to hear from you some of your thoughts today. Great to see you all. Shana Tova. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Shana Tova. Glad you're feeling better. Glad to see you. Um, I, I, I just want to, at the end, at the end of your comments, I, I love the whole gematria business. I, I've, I've always loved that. And now this new um, thing that new to me, you know, about the Ayin and the Aleph, I really... I can really take that to heart and appreciate that. But I just had a quick question. What sound does Olive make? Is that is that is that a loaded question? No. Oh, I, okay. I honestly one I wondered because what sound does Olive make? It, it it depends partially with the vowels that are associated with it. Oh, okay. All right. Um so and for people who who for anyone who's not aware of this, vowels are not letters in Hebrew. Like in, in, in English, we have A-E-I-O-U. Those are letters that we call vowels. In the Hebrew language, there's dots underneath letters that are the vowels. And so um, and so the, the, the way you recite a letter is different based upon the vowel, how it's associated with that letter. And yeah. so the olive can make many different sounds. So um, can I in. What's that? So can I in. So can I in, right. <laughs> So that's, and, I, I mean, and, and in a sense, it is loaded because I, you know, that I, you know, I just, <laughs> I, do I, I don't know, but do you, I, you don't really have to dwell on that, but I just wanted to bring that up. And also, I just love this uh, lecture today. I just thought it was great. I had no idea um, about this John Stuart Mill and his, uh, so how much it I can relate to it and relate to how much he relates to Judaism and all the things that I'm familiar with. Thank you. Great, Cheryl, thank you. And so it's interesting enough, sometimes people make the connection, Cheryl. For example, um, um, Amen and Emunah, right? Amen comes from El Melech Ne'eman. Um, it's, it's a word of faith, right? You say Amen or Amen after a blessing or a prayer, you say Amen. The word Emunah means faith, but one is an ayin, one is an aleph. And so they're they're not the same root, but nonetheless, people make the connection between the two. That saying amen means like I have faith in what was just said, right? Um, in any case, um, the famously, you know, in the Ten Commandments, the first letter is an ayin. It's anochi Hashem. I am God. And according to some um, Hasidic thinkers. The only thing that was heard at Mount Sinai of the Ten Commandments was the first letter, the ayin of Anochi, which is a silent letter. So what do you mean you, you heard the first letter? Actually, they heard nothing. They, they heard, what do you call it, a glutteral stop? Is that what it's called? What's that? Guttural. Guttural. A guttural yeah. stop. Um, and so the, it's the sound of the throat opening, but making no sound. Um, is what, according to the Hasidic thinkers, they heard at Mount Sinai of the Ten Commandments. And so actually, revelation occurs in silence rather than through words. And so the ayin being silent is a revelatory word 
even though it is often it's often silent. Anyways, Cheryl, I'm so glad you brought that up. Now, in case people don't know what um, the word that Cheryl used, gematria. Gematria means numerology. And numerology is a whole spiritual tradition of adding up the numerical value of Hebrew letters and showing meaning in that. Um, the most obvious one here that everybody would know is chai, right? People say chai is life. The chet, chai is spelled chet yud. Chet is the eighth letter of the uh, of the alphabet. And yud is the 10th. Eight plus 10 is 18. 18. And that's why eight, the number 18 represents life. And people donate money in, in sums of 18. 18, uh, 36, uh, 180. Um, all of you today can make a nice gift of eighteen thousand when if you're if you're but if you're ready, you know to honor to honor the life of what we're doing here together. <laughs> um, and so uh, hi, but another but another great one is if you add up Av and Aim, father and mother, and you add up those the numerology, you get child, you get child. So like um, so the, anyways, there's so many. There's literally thousands of of mysteries kind of buried within the numerologies of Hebrew letters. And there's people who love that and live for that. And if you Google it, you'll find all kinds of interesting things. Anyways, thank you, Cheryl. Hi, Eileen. Hi, Shmuley. Um, it seems to me that we live in an age of ever increasing wants, not needs. We're bombarded by ads and, um, now, if you look on some of the online spaces, the influencers are selling you this and that. And what was good yesterday is not good today. So it's this constant turmoil. And I think a lot of people feel unhappy because they don't have the latest without understanding that it's not material items that contribute to your happiness. Great, great. Eileen, I'm so glad you brought that up this week because I've been thinking so much about this. And so going back to, to my friends in AA, the friends in recovery, a big part of the wisdom in that world, I mean, this will sound obvious to us, but it's worth repeating, is that Many human beings, perhaps every human being, to some degree or another, feels they're not enough. I'm not enough, right? My parents belittled me as a child, or my teachers told me I wasn't smart enough, or my coaches told me I wasn't fast enough. I am not enough. And people do various things to fill that hole in their lives of not being enough. And what alcoholics do, by and large, or drug addicts do, is they use substances to fill that hole. I have this, this big hole in my life of not being enough, and I'm going to use these things to, to relieve myself of that pain, of that emptiness. And I think a big part of what we also do, all of us today, is we fill a big part of our emptiness as consumers. Um, rather than sit with the discomfort of things, we engage in mass consumerism. In fact, I think the, the, the identity of consumer, I think in many ways is the most dominant identity, identity for Americans today, right? We used to think, oh, Judaism is at threat from Christianity 
Judaism is at threat from some secular ideology. No, religion is at threat from um, consumer identity. What people are choosing instead of going to Kol Nidre is not to go to mass. They're not choosing to go to some you know intellectual lecture. They're choosing a consumer mentality by and large. That that systems of meaning are being rapidly replaced by consumer consumer identities. And so um, um, what people want to talk about in free time is things we're going to buy, things we're, right? And like you said, there's an infinitely growing sense of the next Apple product, the next Travelocity purchase of a trip I'm going to take, the next Amazon delivery I'm going to, I'm going to plan. Again, nothing against consumption. We have to be consumers. But, but is, is the consumer role playing too large of a role in my life? Right. That sense that that what I primarily am is a being of desire and what I primarily am is a being of pleasure, seeking to constantly fulfill that in in a world of marketing that tells me there's an infinite amount of stuff to desire. And yes, Eileen, back to you. So it seems to me that both alcohol and drugs numb you from your pain. I think consumerism to the extent we're seeing it, is the same thing. And what we come to understand is buying the latest outfit today leaves you tomorrow wanting more and better. So it doesn't, none of these things solve the problem of the individual who is broken. Yes, exactly. Thank you. And so, yes, exactly. Nothing. There's nothing against consumption and consumers, but that when when it is playing that role in our life of numbing us from things, one of the reasons I think fasting is so powerful, and here I don't just mean from food, all kinds of fast, is this attempt to gain a little bit of control of what is filling that need, um, of that emptiness within us. Many of us eat eat for that reason. I mean, I'm a big overeater. And, and, and I often eat a lot at times, um, yeah, where I feel anxious or I feel stressed or I feel sad. I eat even more. Um, and so, too, I find, you know, shopping habits, consumption habits are are connected to sadness. Sometimes I feel I feel low. And so I'm thinking, oh, do, do I need a trip? Do we need to buy something? Do I what do we need? How am I going to f- fill that? And and, you know, and it's worth thinking, like the ability to fast from food, getting control of that geez, can I exist for 25 hours without eating? Fasting from speech, if you've never done a speech fast, taking a 25 hour, I mean, if you go on a week re- a silent retreat, but taking a 25 hour fast from speech or, you know, fasting from shopping, to, you know, imagine imagine saying I'm going to go a week without shopping. I'm not going to buy anything. I'm gonna, Yeah, I'm going to make sure I have enough food in the fridge. I'm going to be okay, right? There's going to be things on auto pay, right? But can I go a week without going shopping, like buying stuff, you know? And so- um, so anyways, Eileen, thank you for thank you for raising that. Hi, Arnie. Over to you, Arnie. Hi. I've often connected utilitarianism with the Spock philosophy. The needs of the, the many outweigh the needs of the one or the few. Is that a correct categorization? You, you, uh, what, what did you call it? The Spock ideology? The, the, uh, well, yeah. He, he, he says that in one of the movies. The needs of oh, the... Okay. The okay. So now, now, now I have confessed to everyone that I'm not a Trekkie. Everyone now knows that I've never seen a single Star Trek movie or show <laughs> in my life. Although Leonard Nimoy, um, you know, was a Cohen, and and I, and uh, unfortunately, he used to mock 
he I I once heard, I was was with Leonard Nimoy and he kind of you know was mocking what a Cohen does, but it's okay. He's you know he's, he he did some good stuff in the world, <laughs> and I know some people in his family who are good people. Um, but um, yes, anyway. So in so anyways, you're saying there's an idea in Star Trek that you help the many over the few, or the one. Over, over the one. Okay. And is that treated there as like an anti-selfish principle? Like it's not about me, it's about the us? Yes. Okay. Got it. Um, that's a great, that's a great point, Arnie. Um, because I don't think we're going to get to virtue ethics later where a big part of ethics is not about what we're talking about here, the consequence, nor is it about what Kant was talking about, the intention, but virtue ethics is about the virtues cultivated in me. So to the extent that we're talking about that principle as a sense of humility and breaking down my own selfishness, hey, life is not about me, it's about us. I don't think that's what they're talking about. But but to the extent that it is about the collective welfare over the individuals, absolutely. Here would be a good example. Utilitarians care about animals as well. And so what a utilitarian might say is the pleasure to me in eating a great steak is a lower pleasure, um, is a lower qu quant uh, uh, quantitatively and qualitatively than the pain to the cow that was slaughtered. And so, um, yes, uh, if I was Kantian, I'd say, well, who cares about cows? I'm a person and they're a cow. I care about people, not cows, right? But to a utilitarian who cares about pleasure and pain, the pain of the cow is significantly more and the loss to the cow than my pleasure in the steak. And so I care less about my pleasure because I care more about the, about the, about the collective amount of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. And so too, one would say, um, one would say here as well, like, that's great that that gives you pleasure, but there's a, a bigger collective we have to be concerned with. That's great that you want to smoke in public, right? But five people are going to be affected by your secondhand smoke, right? And so, um, and so, you know, if you want nothing wrong with smoking, your body, your life, go smoke in private, right? But as soon as you choose to do that, the harm principle of Mill says you're now causing harm. I don't care if that smoking gives you pleasure, right? And so, yes. So, Arnie, do you want to follow up on that, or, or is that connection enough? Well, in this particular um, instance, uh, Spock was martyring himself. So he was giving his life to save something greater than himself. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yes. So I think that that would happen here. So, you know, you may have found stories like these troubling or troubling, or you may find them inspiring, probably more likely inspiring. But there were some of these stories of like when COVID first hit and people needed um, th there were limited, uh, you know, wh what's it called when you, you you couldn't breathe and you had to be admitted you know, somebody help me out. We got we got a bunch of doctors here. <laughs> you couldn't breathe in COVID, and you need respiratory to be put respiratory distress. What is it? Respiratory distress. Great. Okay. Great. There were a bunch of countries which didn't have access to enough of enough machines in, in the early stages of COVID, and um, there were stories about people of people in their nineties. I'm thinking in particular about a woman in Ireland who was 93, who you know w was admitted but turned it down because there was a child there also you know, and said that child should get the machine and that woman died there. Um, and so, 
a utilitarian would support that, not because it's an act of selflessness and that's noble, but because that child has much more life to go than me. And so we should save the child over the elderly person because it's going to maximize the amount of pain and minimize the amount of pleasure. Excuse me. Excuse me. Opposite. Um, you know, um, because that person has a bunch, a bunch of life potential still to go. Now, to a Kantian, that is that's horrific. The person who's ninety three, their life matters just as much as a three year old. You can't choose the three year old over because they have more life to go. That person can choose to be selfless, but they have no ethical obligation to do so. Every life has infinite value and dignity, right? We would say, one would say, but for a utilitarian, yes, you have to martyr yourself if you can save a more people or if you can save someone younger, right? You might say. So yes, Arnie, thank you for thank you for sharing that. So then here we get into some of the great ethical debates if we look at the utilitarian versus the other. Now, th this is another controversial one we're going to see later is, um, uh, well, you know what? Let's save that for Peter Singer. Peter Singer is going to bring us into a whole hot mess of, uh, of controversies um, as, as, a, as, a, as a living utilitarian, <laughs> as it deals with, with elder, elder care, as it deals with people with special needs. Hey, Rabbi, something that's been coming up to mind is that sometimes I feel like there's a shame for people who are like trying to take into little pleasures. Um, like I often sometimes feel like people with a lot of funding get mad at people who spend money on like a Starbucks. They're like, well, if you would have gone to Starbucks, you would you wouldn't be in poverty. Or if you didn't eat out this time, you would be you um you know, you you wouldn't be in the financial situation that you are or people who are checking out with food stamps and they've got chips in their in their line and like you can see the visceral hate of people but people should have the autonomy and the right to joy people should be regardless of your class regardless of your status i think that people should have the automatic right to be able to have a simple joy which is why i also love that in our homeless outreach we sometimes do have a candy bar. We sometimes do provide chips so that people can remind themselves of the joy of, of you know, having something sweet or a snack. Great, great. Eddie, thank you for that. Um, that, you know, one of the reasons I'm laughing is one of the things that resonated for me. I wonder if other people do this as well. I've never asked anybody, but um, I have to confess that sometimes, you know, like at night, if I want to have a treat or something, even though I think that's like not the worst thing in the world. I do it when my wife's not around. <laughs> I, I I find myself, okay, she's taking a shower. So I go into the pantry and I get a little something. It, it reminds me of, um, like I had a great grandfather who's his, his wife, my great grandmother would, would hear him sneaking into the fridge and I, he might've been diabetic or something. So she said, what are you doing over there? You know, she's kind of like, call, get back over here. You know, <laughs> you know, but, but for me, I, I find myself, um, almost like a little bit like, like a little bit embarrassed or ashamed that I'm getting a treat, which doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, I've been, is that a common thing? Is this what people do in the world? Like if you're married or, or you have a partner, you wait till your partner's not around to grab a little treat. Is that what people do in the world? Is that just me? Anyways. Um, so, uh, I, I, now, now that I've told all of you, I've got to tell her, I guess. So it <laughs> doesn't feel fair that her, that she not know what you all know. So anyways, yeah, but back to your moral point there, Eddie, I appreciate that because I remember that a lot. Um, yeah, that people being judged who, you know, are are choosing those kinds of foods foods or people for choosing, you know, to buy certain things 
that feel like pleasures, but why should they be doing that if they're on food stamps or the like? And yeah, I think we have a whole shame culture around this kind of stuff. Going back to consumption and how loaded consumption is, uh, sometimes we're embarrassed. I mean, people are embarrassed by how little they have, but people, some people are embarrassed by how much they have. Um, and some people are embarrassed by how they consume, by, you know, things they drink or things they eat or things they buy. And that's worth thinking about. What is our relationship to shame and consumption? We talked about being enough and how we sometimes fill that gap. But then there's this whole other, this whole other layer around shame as well. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yes, hi. Hi, uh, hi Glea. Okay, this is just going to be short, though. But um, the, like when we're talking about Pirke Avodin, it just um, kind of um, came to me. Um, it's one of the things that I talk about when I'm doing, um, you know, like ancient Greek, um, you know, history with my students is I bring up Prometheus Bound. Now, I don't know if I have any fans of Greek mythology in here besides me, but anyway, though, but the question is, though, is that um, with Prometheus, um, what he actually did is he took away humans' um, foreknowledge of the day that we would actually individually die, like our individual deaths and everything. So I asked students to consider what if you did actually know the day that you would die? And a lot of the time, though, they come up with answers like, well, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't try to cheat death, stuff like that. So I kind of wonder sometimes if um, the happiness thing is, you know, related to that, um, whether or not we try to be happy, you know, around the same principle. So I wanted to relate that, see if you could relate that. I don't know if you wanted to relate that to Judaism or not. Thank you. Anyone, anyone want to respond to that? I love you. I love that Aglaia is asking this at, during these days of awe. And when we reflect on the fact that every day is new, we not only will we hope to be written into that book of life for another year, but we can't assume that. Each time we wake up in the morning, we thank the universe, the Lord, the eternal whatever that we have opened our eyes one more day and have one more opportunity to be in this world and to repair this world. Yeah, Sarah, beautifully said. Thank you so much. Yes, beautiful. Friends, I, um, I wanna do one last thing before we wrap up here. I'm sorry we went a minute over. We hope people will always feel free to bring their lives into this community. If you're mourning or going through something difficult to share that with us or if something joyful is going on, and I just want to acknowledge one joyful thing that, that's going on today. Um, I want to celebrate our friend Aglaia, who converted to Judaism a few days ago. Um, and so if you'll join me in, in singing with her, Simen Tov, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, Simen Tov, Simen Tov, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, Simen Tov, Simen Tov, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, Simen Tov, Yehmanu. Mazel Tov, Aglaia, we're so happy you're learning with us. And that you've taken that journey. I think most people here maybe uh, didn't even know you were on that journey. And um, I, 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 of course, only shared with her permission. Um, so, Glenn, I don't know if you want to share anything, um, you know, briefly about that or what the experience has been for you. Um, I'll tell you the shortest, uh, like the shortest thing I can say, something really weird happened to me. Like after um, the mikvah and everything, though, um, my mentor rabbi had actually asked me to sing publicly. And I quit singing um, publicly many years ago because I would freak out if I wanted, like anyone wanted me to go on stage, I would actually have like really serious anxiety attacks. Well, she told me that she wanted me to sing and I thought it was going to sound really annoying because my natural range is actually a soprano. And 
for some strange reason, I did not get nervous for the first time in my life. It was amazing. <laughs> awesome, Aglaya. Thank you. Well, wishing everyone a Shana Tova that um, should be a just a wonderful, sweet year for everyone, healthy year, successful year, a year of continued growth and learning together. And just continue to express my gratitude to all of you for, for showing up, for sharing, and being a part of this um, experience together. Have a great day. Have a meaningful Yom Kippur if you're going to engage with that. And we'll see you next Tuesday.